Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Liverpool Echo. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective, you're in the right place. I'm Dan O'Donoghue and on this week's episode, we'll be focusing on how the Conservative Party performs in the North. Now, we've all heard how the Red Wall supposedly fell to Boris Johnson at the general election in 2019, with many of Labour's heartlands turning blue for the first time. But the picture on the local authorities governing our great northern cities couldn't be more different. In Liverpool, there are no Tory councillors and the picture is mirrored in Manchester and Newcastle. Historically, that hasn't always been the case. In years gone by, the Conservatives have had a very strong presence on local government in our region. So what's changed? With me to discuss all this and more is the chairman of the Manchester Tories, James Pearson, politics professor John Tong and the Liverpool Echo political editor, Liam Thor. Welcome all. James, perhaps if I could just come to you first as a Northern representative of the party, I just wondered if you could kind of shine a bit of a light on why there are so few Conservative councillors on some of our Northern local authorities. I mean, you're right that it wasn't always the case. Um, However, I think doing a bit of research, um, the last few Conservative councillors elected to Manchester and to Liverpool councils were in the the early 90s. So we've had a a, a really sort of... um, you know, 30 year gap from getting a Conservative across the line and elected. Now, a, a number of things have changed and uh, there were a number of different factors, I, I think. Certainly when I talked to sort of Labour uh, ex-colleagues in, in Manchester, they're very much of the view it was sort of Thatcher in the 80s. Um, certainly from talking to um, similar opposition parties in, in Liverpool, um, they think it really runs back to the the late 60s and um, some of the activities around um, the the sort of um, sectarian elements uh, in, in, in Liverpool, that that was a big factor back in the day. Um, one of the things I, I would say is that um, voters aren't, aren't, you know, are, are quite sharp when it comes down to knowing uh, what's going on locally and, and also what the natural picture is. And I've seen a lot of instances where people have voted one way nationally but voted another way locally because they don't believe um, that a vote for us would actually see uh, an alternative than Labour. So tactically uh, you have some quite vociferous and active uh, groups specifically the Greens uh, specifically Liberal Democrats who present the alternative narrative in a way that distance themselves from a national picture. It, it is always fair to say that when um, you know when you've had a party in government for a long time it usually suffers in the local elections and we certainly benefited from that in in the sort of mid early 2000s under under Blair and Gordon Brown um but but yeah I mean it's it's a difficult one in that in order to have a successful campaign you do need an element of resources behind it and what we fight constantly in the city centres is a very dominant Labour Party well-funded well-resourced and what we end up with is a, a number of sort of small group of volunteers who don't have a lot of money, who don't have a lot of spare time, and and that we're supposed to sort of counter them. And it is very much a David and Goliath sort of experience. We have had um, instances where we've, we've, we've broken through on issues, but that hasn't necessarily yielded a, a conservative over the line at, at, you know, at the crucial time uh, during the elections in May. 
John, I mean, we, we've heard a, a multitude of reasons there, you know, from Thatcher to sectarianism to funding issues to obviously the experience with, in that, with national government. I just wondered if you could put it in a kind of historical context for us, the Merseyside and the, and the North more, more broadly, I suppose, and, and the Conservative Party's fortunes. Yeah, I mean, let's deal with a few of those issues. Sectarianism certainly does help explain the decline of the Conservatives in Liverpool because um, contrary sort of to some myths that are sometimes peddled, Liverpool was not naturally a Labour city at all. The Conservatives dominated Liverpool City Council until the 1970s. They were in control for most of the time, uh, partly because Protestants of different social classes would vote Conservative. They even had a tie-up with the, the local Protestant party, councillors just going under that name. And when that party folded in the 1970s, most of, the, of those councillors simply joined the Conservative Party and the Conservatives never opposed that party. So there was sectarianism. Um, the decline of sectarianism on, on, on Merseyside hindered the, the, the Conservatives. But it shows, I think, you know, James is, is quite right, that the, the decline of the Conservatives precedes Margaret Thatcher. Thatcherism may have accelerated the decline and certainly did accelerate the decline, particularly in Liverpool. But really, the turning point was probably the 1964 general election, Harold Wilson, uh, popular locally. And that's when that's really the election when people begin when Liverpool really do vote with their social class rather than their religion. In terms of Manchester, you know, going further afield, um, it was again. You know, the Conservatives sometimes control the city council. And I think that's where the general factors kick in. The the decline of our northwest cities in particular didn't help the Conservatives. And the Conservatives were often blamed for that decline. And whilst we've seen a great resuscitation of those northern cities from the 1990s onwards, the damage had been done. And I think that's the problem for the Conservatives. And that's why the Conservatives have not had people elected in Liverpool or Manchester since uh, the early to mid 1990s, so it's a case of, of damage done, and and that does beg the question whether the position is recoverable. But there are different and quite complex reasons, I think, as, as to why you had the decline uh, of the Conservatives. Liam, you've been covering Merseyside and the, and the wider North extensively for a, for a decade now. I just wonder what your impression of, of you know the Conservatives and why the party doesn't perform better. Yeah, I think I, I can probably mainly speak about Liverpool. And, and as John says, it's, a, it's an interesting case. I think people often think, and as James said, people often think that it's it's all down to Thatcher. Um, I think in Liverpool, it was Thatcher where it, the Tories went from kind of fading away to becoming completely irrelevant and in many places deeply disliked and distrusted. Um, but, you know, Liverpool is a contrarian city, I would say. Um, and it doesn't tend to, it tends to book the trends um, nationally in general so actually the times when the Tories were sort of most powerful um, in the in the, just after the war and then and then into the 60s and 70s it was often when Labour were in government and then of course when when Labour were in government in the in the sort of uh, you know from 97 onwards it was it was the Lib Dems that were running the council here in Liverpool so I think sometimes people can get a bit too wrapped up with this idea that Liverpool is a Labour city, it's often a contrarian city and it's often a city that doesn't want to go with the national trend. Um, but yeah, I think that I actually um, sort of have the belief that the last, the sort of period, the austerity period under Cameron and, and Osborne was potentially even more damaging for the, the Tories' um, sort of reputation here in Liverpool. Because of course, in the from the sort of eight, the troublesome times with the 80s onwards, there was that presence of, of Michael Heseltine and there was that at least that kind of willingness to for, from him anyway to reach out and we saw the, re, the sort of, some of the regeneration that came with the Albert Docks and things like that 
from from 2010 onwards, it's almost like the Tories were like, we, we have absolutely no prospects there. So you know that we're, we're gonna we're gonna act like it, and the the, the the sort of the cuts and and austerity that came towards Liverpool was was far harsher than in many other places. So I think I really do think in somewhere like here they they are kind of past the point of no return. I don't. It's hard to see any prospect. What I would say is is it's worth pointing out that at the general election in 2019, um, the Tories came second in every Liverpool constituency, which might surprise some people. But obviously, people do are voting more along national lines. There was issues of Brexit. Then, when you go to the the council elections in twenty twenty one, they were absolutely nowhere in any seat. So, as James was saying before, you know, people kind of return to those those local issues. But it's more, I'd say, it's more complicated than people think. But I would say that it's been accelerated more in the last sort of ten years. I, I mean, just just to sort of echo that. I mean, when when I ran for parliament in Liverpool in in twenty fifteen. Um, I came second, which was unusual, um, and uh, kept the deposit and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. um, the Lib Dem uh, candidate who I, I met up with a, a few years later sort of said that in one of the strong Lib Dem wards, people were coming out um, after voting and, and sort of acknowledging the Lib Dem council candidate, shaking his hand, who was well, you know, quite well prominent, uh, prominent person, and then sort of avoiding his eye as they as they left because they'd clearly voted for me. Oh, that was his opinion. They clearly wrote it for me uh, at, a, at a national level. But what I would say, though, is um, we do struggle as well with the, the narrative that, that comes out. Um, and I'm going to target the echo a little bit here because you're, you're, quite, you're quite good at peddling this, this idea that, you know, actually nobody cares about Liverpool and, uh, um, you know, I don't know the, what the, the, the government's cut them away. Um, yeah. and, and in fairness, I mean, uh, you know, what, we have consistently over over certainly the last 15 years uh, and, and I think even further managed to get a candidate for every single seat um, in, in Liverpool, a candidate for every single seat in Manchester. And that, that certainly hasn't been the case with, with other parties. And even the parties that, that actually have sitting councillors haven't managed to find the candidates. And, and just to bear in mind, it's not just a case of finding a warm-bodied person who's prepared to stand a, you know put their name on the ballot. We've got to then find 10 other people to sign nomination papers. Now, certainly when I was a council candidate in Liverpool in 2014, the Liverpool Echo ran a who are your local council candidates and they covered everybody else except us. And we were the only one that had all, all seats nominated at the time. And it was very much like we didn't exist. And we, uh, we did complain and we were told, oh, yeah, we just forgot about you. And it was sort of like, well, you know, <laughs> government of the day or in coalition, you know, we, we have a presence here, but, you know, by ignoring us completely, um, there is a there is a sort of disservice there. Um, I appreciate I appreciate there's an agenda, but yeah. No, I, I was just interested because I've heard from from some sort of uh, people who sort of Tory candidates that it, somewhere like Liverpool is seen as somewhere that, you know, if you want to be a candidate, you've got to go and, and sort of, you know, earn your stripes in a, in a potentially hostile city like Liverpool. Is, is that is that true? Um, I think there, there is a there is a track record of people that have gone on to uh, greater things. Let's say um, there, there's a couple of cabinet ministers who have cut their teeth in, uh, in 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 Liverpool. I wouldn't say it was uh, it was taken any less seriously by the party. What, what you do have in Liverpool is um, you know a group of, of dedicated volunteers. There's not there's not a massive number of them, but but they're there and they work really hard against what is you know perceived a forlorn hope. Um, and they do it year in and year out. Uh, and, you know, it is great when you've got a, a sort of high-profile person that's come in to, to, to be a candidate 
um, to cut their teeth in a parliamentary election. But but actually, um, one of the things that the party isn't always good at is is recognising that having candidates, parliamentary candidates selected early, help the local voluntary party fundraise uh, and and do other campaigning activity. So certainly. Um, we've had two general elections now under by-election conditions where candidates have just been you know, parachuted in at the last minute. Um, and certainly back in 2015, we, we, didn't get our, we weren't permitted by CCHQ to get our candidates selected until early 2015, despite the Fixed Term Parliament Act and everybody knowing by 2011 when the general election was going to be. So when the sort of senior party treats the local voluntary party not particularly well or doesn't consider them, then, then that actually you know has an has an effect when bbc radio merseyside were, were running a profile on on liverpool waiver tree um you know they didn't come to me till february 2015 and basically said well you've not formally been a, been selected as the candidate so we didn't we didn't bother um which was a little bit sort of you know uh, you know we've been active there since pretty much 2013 um but you know not having that you know a blue tick approved candidate status was was an issue. I just um, I just just wondered on on that point, James. I mean, obviously the the composition of the Conservative Party has changed somewhat in recent years. You know, certainly there's the Northern Research Group now, and there's a lot more made of the party, kind of making a play for the North, especially with the leveling up agenda. I just wondered, is CCHQ taking uh, the Northern branch of the party a bit more seriously nowadays? Is there a bit more communication? Where, where do, you, do you feel you are at the moment? So um, you, you have to bear in mind that I'm I'm oh, sorry, chairman of Manchester Federation, but that's that's pretty much an association level. So it's one association that covers um, four parliamentary constituencies. But I, I was also uh, in a, a few years back uh, chairman of Merseyside Conservatives, that covered all of the nine parliamentary constituencies that are under the under the party sort of structure. So um, we have northwest, northeast, uh, based on the sort of EU. Um, you know, constituency boundaries before, and, and that's the that's the sort of regional structure of the party. Um, is it taking it slightly more seriously? Uh, yes and no. In that, I think certainly some of the red wall seats uh, victories in in twenty nineteen were as much of a shock to CCHQ as they were to everybody else. Um, and and certainly, um, you know, I'm, I, I was on a conference call where the the chairman of a Lee Association said, you know, really thought they were in with a good chance was basically laughed at by the chief executive of the party saying don't be ridiculous we're not going to win lee um and and james grundy you know there he is as, as the mp but i mean james grundy had been there he grew up there he was a very good local councillor when he was on wigan council as a councillor and he had a profile and people knew him um did cchq you know count him as a you know top flight front bench you know future party leader i very much doubt that but he's a really good constituency mp so when you have put the time, effort and energy in, the senior party recognise it and you're allowed a bit of latitude to select good local candidates, then local voters respond to that. Um, parliamentary is very different to, to local government because, um, because of the resource element behind it and also the local profile piece. Um, we, you know, despite the fact that um, you know, we're, we're perceived as having you know, wealthy donors behind us and all that sort of stuff, um, that money doesn't come down to association level we have to go and generate it ourselves by coffee mornings and you know um, uh, dinners and raffle tickets and that sort of stuff and it, and it doesn't go a long way um, but the, the it's finding that balance between between the two um, I think as well um, the, the, the difficulty and this goes back to a little bit to how things are reported you know 
um, there has been a hell of a lot of funding from central government that's gone through the metro mayors, through directly to the councils. And you, you only, the sort of narrative is very much, you know, Labour Council spending you know, money for projects that's good and anything that's withdrawn or perceived to be running out of money, it's always the government's fault. And, um, you know, that, that piece about sort of uh, being frugal, being sensible with the money that you've got, it, it just, it, it doesn't resonate anywhere in, in any of the city centres purely because, you know, there, there is this perceived sort of magic money tree, or at least if it's if it's paused or there's a delay in funding, it's it's the Tories' fault. Um, and, uh, you know, that's... Well, I mean, it is, it, surely it's, it, it, you, you must admit that over the over the, the years f- from the Cameron government onwards, I mean, the, the numbers don't lie in terms of the, the direct cuts to central government grants that, you know, that councils... Sure, but, but peddling the narrative that it was just Liverpool or it was just Merseyside or it was just Labour areas is is a false no, narrative. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I think it's pretty clear it was it was it was everywhere. But it's, some areas were, were hit more than others, and certainly areas with higher needs, um, like you know poorer cities like Liverpool, which struggled will, will have struggled more. And that's I think that's where, as I say, I think more of that damage was done in that period. In some ways, there, there's a more of a um, that there was, they felt like there was still something of a reaching out when when Hazel Time was there. Yes, there was the comments about managed decline, but it didn't go that far, and and there was a kind of a feeling that there was still an interest there. It felt very much, I think, for most people in Liverpool, it felt through the Cameron years, it was, you know, there was no interest in actually. It was quite a kind of treated as a almost as a, an afterthought or, or or worse, I think. Just on that point, I just wonder if I could bring you in, John. I mean, obviously, we've heard a lot about kind of the impact of austerity. Um, and obviously, we've now got the levelling up agenda. And that's kind of moving the conversation forward somewhat. And I just wondered if you thought, I don't know, if 2019 and that result was maybe kind of a one-off on the basis of Brexit and the attraction of Boris Johnson, or whether there was kind of a broader shifting of, shifting of the sands in the north, whether we were about to see more of a revival uh, over the longer term. I just wonder what your impression was. Um, it was a one-off in the sense that "Get Brexit Done" was a very was a, was a brilliant slogan uh, by Boris Johnson. It was a one-off in terms of some of the seats that were won. I suspect they'll be very, very difficult to retain at the next election. I don't think the levelling up agenda is is something that is um, that c- can be lightly dismissed. I also think that 2019 reflected it, the decline of class voting uh, in Britain. People, you know, once upon a time, the, the old adage, you know, the middle class would vote Conservative. That was basically torn asunder, and that's been coming for a long, long time now. There's many other variables in, in terms of how people vote, and I think the Conservatives tapped into that very successfully in capturing some of those northern seats. And you know, I, I would share James, James' surprise, you know, in, in terms of Lee, places like Lee. Uh, and as soon as you go into the suburbs, you've got a very strong and, and resilient Conservative vote. But that said, I do think they'll struggle to retain some of those. In terms of some of the points that were made earlier about about Liverpool, first of all, in terms of the candidates. I meet some of the candidates when I've covered Liverpool counts for, on local election nights, and they're often my students, um, paper candidates uh, in many ways put up, um, uh, who, and it's good for democracy that they stand. Um, and, but, but that's, they're the only Conservatives I tend to find in Liverpool, or actually, you know, there's some of the, some of the students that are not necessarily uh, from, from Liverpool. I agree, though, that there is differential voting according to type of election. If you look at the last locals in Liverpool, only one in 20 people voted Conservative. Very, very low figure. That's higher. It's higher. It's quite significantly higher at at, at parliamentary uh, elections. I also agree with Liam on terms of the extent to which Liverpool is a Labour city. 
can certainly be disputed. Only 50% of Liverpool voted Labour at uh, the most recent local elections. Compare that to Manchester, two in three people voted Labour at um, and Manchester is a more solidly Labour council. It's just that the image, I think image is quite important in this. You can, you know, the, the Conservatives are happily hosted by a pragmatic Labour council uh, for their annual conference. Can you imagine, this is the question, can you imagine the Conservatives ever taking their party conference to Liverpool? I think that would be a very, very interesting question as to what, what reception they get, and whether, they, whether they dare and what reception they would get. And in many ways, you know, it will, I think it would actually be good for Liverpool. And I know I'll get slaughtered for saying this, but I think it would be good for the city that they could welcome a Conservative Party conference. But I can't ever, I can't ever see it uh, happening. Uh, I'd be interested to see whether James thinks that that, that, would, that, that, that. Well, yeah, it was. It, it was actually slated for twenty twenty four. Really, um, yeah. we'd, we'd agreed we'd agree the contract with the. Um, we could call it the Echo Arena, but it's not that anymore, is it? Whatever the I've forgotten the MNS Bank Arena. MS, no, is it right? right. Okay. Um, so, so that that was that was firmly on the cards up until I think 20, 2019, because this stuff this stuff's agreed years out in advance. So the the terms the terms with Manchester had been um, uh, yeah. So um, it it was and and certainly from from our perspective, being some you know, Liverpool Conservatives at the time. You know, we we're absolutely chuffed to bits with with that announcement, and I think security-wise, logistics-wise, all that sort of stuff um, was you know people were pretty happy with that. Um, I think that the direction change was, I mean, certainly we had Spring Forum in Blackpool um, this year, uh, which we haven't we haven't been to Blackpool I think since the, since the mid or I think two thousand five was the last time we went there, but that again wasn't the full wasn't the full conference. Um, I mean, there is. It is. It is. Fair is it still on? Is it still on for Liverpool? Or no, I, 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 I think. I think after COVID and everything, it, it, they they've rejigged it. But uh, it, it was certainly. I, I saw. Was that before Boris Johnson was elected? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, just because he obviously has a particular difficult relationship with with Liverpool, with things said, I wondered if that might have instigated a change. I don't. I don't think so, because certainly. Um, Certainly, from the conversation I had with, with the conferencing team, they, you know, we had pushed it quite some time ago, and and they'd gone and gone and done the logistics because the, the the big concern around conferences, obviously, post you know Brighton, um, is a security factor and all that sort of stuff. So, um, not that there were going to be a perceived threat from you know, locals in in Liverpool. It was more in you know in and out locations and standby locations. You know, the sort of the deep specialist logistics bits but I, I they they it had taken some time um to get i think merseyside police to sign off on it i i don't know the full the full history but um it was it was very much a we can do this this is a venue that we we've we've now you know been been greenlit to have conference at very interesting um, so so yeah it's it from from that side that's you know those obstacles have been have been done and i think you know not not being funny um you know we 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 had very similar conversations with with Manchester back in the late nineties, and were told, "No, it's impossible. Can't possibly do it. Can't possibly do it." And then, and then when we actually got round all the logistical problems, um, I think it was, it was Labour were like, "Well, we're, we're, you know, we're not we're not going to have the Tories let us have their first conference in Manchester without Labour." So, you know, that package was pretty much recycled, and, and Labour brought their conference to Manchester. Um, so uh, maybe maybe there's a wider factor in that. Um, I don't know. I don't think the Labour Party have had their conference in Liverpool for a, for a while. I may, I may be wrong on that, but 
Uh, um, yeah, a couple of years ago, and they're, they're, they're coming back this this year, aren't they? But, um, I know the Lib Dems did, but let, let's be honest, that's a much smaller affair. So. James, I just I just wondered, obviously, from uh, what John was saying there about um, the the site of having a, a party conference in Liverpool, I wonder what other kind of um, policies, events, things like that that could engage different northern cities that could maybe make them turn, turn their heads towards the Tories. I mean, what would you like to see happening? You mean as far as party activity, or yeah, party about? activity, and, and and I suppose more broadly on a on a policy basis as well. I mean, is that is I mean, what do you make of the whole levelling up agenda? Do you think it's it's going far enough? Um, would you like to see it go further? So certainly for things like HS two, uh, you know, I know I know there's been dramas sort of you know between London and, and Birmingham from it going through you know various. Uh, um, parts of, of, of England um, and, and locally, people are not particularly in favour of it. But I mean, um, we've got a we've got a bit of a mix here in that uh, Sir Graham Brady in, in Ultram is very much against it, um, whereas the connectivity for, for from the airport to the city centre and, and all of that sort of stuff, I think I think some of it gets a little bit derailed. I know Andy Burnham's been quite critical of the of the of the government plans and, and between the. Um, the sort of mayor's office and the city council of, of whether it's going to be an above ground station of Piccadilly or underground and those sorts of things. I think, you know, you're, you're playing politics with what could be a really good thing for the, for the city. Um, and I don't know whether that's a delaying tactic or, you know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but I think certainly when I tried to commute from Liverpool to Manchester, um, you know, six, seven years ago, public transport was a nightmare. Even driving was a nightmare. You know, the the M62, M6 junction, you sat in it for 40 minutes every morning unless you set off at 6.30. Um, and, and that was it. And getting the train was, was you know, nowhere near as, you know, Northern Rail, you know, that that was, you were lucky if it showed up and if it was, it was over, overcrowded and late. Um, but apart from that, you know, yeah. So the, the, the those sorts of things, I think, you know, certainly uh, Boris Johnson has a, has a track record of big stuff, big infrastructure, and certainly as mayor of London, getting things like the Elizabeth Line through and you know, on budget, on time when he left office. I appreciate it's only you know, two years late now and it's only open last weekend. But um, those things have a massive impact uh, for the people that live there. Reduced journey times, all that sort of stuff are, are, are really what the economy needs. I appreciate, you know, COVID's made the world a lot smaller and most of us, you know, we're all working from home today. Um, that that you know, things have things have changed, but but being you know, when you see a, mo- a new motorway junction or you see a you see a some sort of you know traffic improvement thing, you don't automatically think oh it's a conservative government that's done that um, because it's just lost in the noise of austerity or other elements when things that people think are more important uh, get get cut or delayed. I mean, just on the infrastructure side of it, I mean, obviously, you, you mentioned the Elizabeth line there and Boris Johnson kind of said the other day that, you know, this was for the, the whole country. It was, a, it was a line to be celebrated by everyone. I mean, do you think stuff like that goes down badly in the north, especially given, you know, the integrated rail plan? A lot of the things in there were not delivered, especially Northern Bauhaus Rail, which would have been essentially a cross rail for the north. Um, do you think that's a bit of an own goal, really, when you are trying to kind of appeal to, to northern voters? I don't. I don't think it is in in the sense that um, the connectivity elements and stuff, um, you know, are, are an improvement. I suppose um, my view very much, and maybe I'm I'm biased here for for Manchester, but 
you know, I, I look at the debates that go on and on about Heathrow and extra runway and what, what the solution is because it's at max capacity. And I sort of said, well, look, if you get HS2 up and running and it's you know, something like 48 or 52 minutes uh, from the, the stop near Heathrow to Manchester Airport, why are you wasting time building an extra runway at, at, at Heathrow when you can just put people on a, a you know a fifty minute train ride up to Manchester and you know you've got connectivity there? I know it maybe sound a little bit naive, but you know there there are you know more than one solution to 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 the particular problems and having having rapid transit from point to point makes a big difference to to everybody and it. it's it's a benefit to the economy. So. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, Manchester is where I grew up and we've always had a reputation of just getting on with stuff and doing it for, for ourselves. Um, you know, Commonwealth Games in 2002 were quite a good example. You know, we didn't wait for permission. We just we just got on with it as a result of the um, you know, Olympic bid in 2000. And, and this idea that, um, you know, we, we're not going to wait for permission from, from London to do something, we'll just go out, get on and do it. Um, I think I think certainly did set us apart, and I suppose you know those two different approaches under same sort of austerity uh, measures is quite right. It under the coalition government, you know, cuts were made um, that we had a different approach in Manchester than, than maybe Liverpool took, but broadly um, that sort of attitude and approach I I don't think is 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 a negative one. Um, but it's how we convert that into people on the doorstep at a local election time, understanding that those bigger things that really matter to them are actually delivered by a conservative, and that what's that got to do with the dog mess and wheelie bins, which are the you know regular things that uh, that local councillors get stuck with. And finally, I just I can't let you leave really, uh, James, without asking you about Partygate and where you stand on the whole affair. I mean, do you think Boris Johnson needs to now make way? I mean, is he going to be damaging your party's prospects in Manchester if he stays on? I mean, let, let's be honest. In, in Manchester, we don't have any Conservative councillors, so uh, we we don't have any Conservative MPs in the city centre. So the the net effect of uh, you know time zero is zero. So, um, but no, what, what I would say is that um, during the pandemic, um, I'm a I'm an officer in the Army Reserves, uh, and I I was mobilised uh, to headquarters Northwest. I spent over a year dealing with testing. I was in Liverpool for the mass testing when when the mayor was arrested. Um, I then commanded the military team at the Nightingale in, in Manchester city centre. Um, we went through some pretty tough times. We had um, certainly in the Nightingale in Manchester. You know, we we had we we put our service personnel up over Britannia Hotel near Piccadilly Gardens, and at the end of a shift. If a couple of them wanted to stand on the lo- on the landing and have a beer and have a chat, um, I had no problem at all with that. Um, I think you know this idea that um, everyone was just on, on the raz in, in 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 London. I don't think is 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 fair. Um, I certainly got sent down to the Department of Health and Social Care in June uh, two thousand to to assist with the transition of the mobile testing program to to civ- you know c- civilian contractors. And um, you know, at the end of the day, there was there was you know, someone ordered to take away, and you know, that was what we what we ate. I I I do struggle a little bit with with this sort of perception that um, you know there's uh, 
yeah, I, 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 the times were pretty tough considering. And I, I certainly have a good idea of what it's like to be at your desk all the way through the pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I met up with a friend who I work with who, who basically said the only people I saw um, during the pandemic were my family and, and me uh, and the other guy that worked in the office. So, um, yeah. Just been a bit cheeky, but if I just put it another way, I mean, if you were an MP in Westminster, would you be submitting a letter to Graham no. Brady or would you no. be? No. No. no, no, no. I just, I just, I, just, I mean, the, the, the thing is about the, the letters and the Graham Brady thing, you know, the 1922 committee has, has rules, you know, the only time it's properly been in, exercised where it's worked was under, under um, when we had Ian Duncan Smith as a leader. When, when they triggered the, the number for Theresa May uh, back in, what was it, 2018? Pretty sure it was sort of Christmas 2018. Um, that, that did no good at all. Um, and I fully suspect that if, if Sir Graham gets the number of letters that he needs, I think it's 50, 54, and they have a vote of no confidence, then that's Boris squared away for another year because there's no, there's no way they're going to have a, you know, there's no way they're not going to vote for him. I just, I just wondered on that point if I could bring in uh, John and Liam and, you know, many, many pundits are saying, you know, Boris, as James has just said, will probably well su- survive a confidence vote. But is it a case of survive the confidence vote and then potentially lose the next general election? I mean, and what would that mean for, for all the gains they made in 2019? Well, as I've said earlier, I, I think the gains of 2019 were very, very difficult to hold. Certainly, certainly some of those seats. Uh, it was quite a remarkable election victory in, in itself. I think Boris Johnson is something of a political Houdini. I think he can tough it out. It, it probably will go to a, um, a a confidence vote. I'd expect him, as, as James indicated, to win very comfortably, more comfortably uh, than Theresa May. And if you look at the survey of Conservative Party members, they still want him uh, as as leader. So it's more probable not that Johnson will lead the Conservatives into, into the next election. And you know, he it's it's still winnable for the Conservatives, but it'd be, I mean, it's almost going to be incredibly difficult to defend a majority of 80. Um, so, you know, it may well be we end up with a, with a hung parliament at the next ele- election anyway. But it, it's looking more likely now that there will be a, a vote of confidence. But he needs to win that vote of confidence big. I mean, that, that's for sure. He can't afford a Theresa May where about a third of the party but were against her. He needs to win bigger than that to, to remain. Uh, but ultimately, I don't think it's... Partygate, the, the, the facts of what happened in Downing Street don't matter. What matters is whether Johnson is seen as an electoral asset. By elections, election performances will determine whether he, he keeps the job, not the shenanigans that went on or didn't go on uh, within Downing Street. It's all about whether you're an electoral asset. So what could be really interesting now is if, if, if as we probably all suspect, there is a vote, he wins it reasonably comfortably, then the Tories go on and potentially lose in Wakefield and, and in Tiverton. And then you know that he's sort of like he's almost he's, he's he's safe for another year, but badly potentially badly damaged by some by election defeats. You know, heading as the cash, as the cost of living crisis continues, that that I think that that is probably an optimal situation for Labour in many ways, because then you've got a guy who's who who's who's sort of stuck there, but is looking weaker and weaker by the day. So I think it, the next the next few weeks will be really really fascinating. But we know, and I hope James would agree with this, that Conservatives. Are you know are pretty ruthless when it comes to electoral uh, electorability, um, and if if he starts to lose elections, as John says, then that's that's when they they might really turn on him. 
the local elections were not good enough for Labour. I mean, that, that, that was clear, very, very clear. They weren't taking, they weren't making a, a, a sufficient gains. But by-elections could well unnerve Conservative MPs, by-election losses. Especially when, when, when you point out that one of them is, is in, is that, you know, slap bang in the middle of that red wall um, in Wakefield. Labour, obviously, I mean, it's as much as a test for, for Starmer as it is for, for Johnson as well, because Starmer needs to win that conclusively, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think, you know, that, that, that is a big factor. And, you know, the uh, historically, you know, by-elections in the middle of a midway through a government, you know, are, are never a good news for the government. They just aren't, and um, but the the trick is the trick is not to get you know too spooked by that and and, and stitch your guns, and I, I think that's you know certainly the you know there are a lot of people that are quite disappointed with what's happened, um, but not to the point where they want to change in leadership or or to see anybody other than than the prime minister lead us into the next general election. I think you're right if it goes if it goes bon- you know if we don't get a majority. Uh, government in the next election, and bear in mind that that can be two and a half years away. Um, you know, famous, famous Merseyside prime ministers. Weeks, a long time in politics. We'll try two and a half years. Uh, you know, no, nobody predicted the pandemic in twenty nineteen, um, and and here we are. So, um, you know, there, there are going to be a number of factors uh, that that will be at play in the in the general election, in, and I strongly suspect that's going to be in two years' time. The other thing to think about as well is that the local elections next year are uh, are most of the Shire County seats that were lost in 2019 during the you know really quite difficult times of the the EU negotiation and Theresa May's really had run out of steam at that point. So um, a lot of the independents that were elected then were in solid Conservative seats that really ought to be coming back to them. So it may look next year that we actually get a boost nationally in the local elections if 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 the Labour Party don't sort their sort their act out, so you can you can look at these sort of measures and say, well, actually, no, he's 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 not lost significant ground. Is inevitable, as you know, as Margaret Thatcher said, uh, you know, you want the government to be really unpopular middle way through a through through a term of office, um, and and in fact, you know, that was one of the things that Cameron said that she scolded him for, saying that he should be more unpopular as prime minister in the midway through midway through a term. But um, but the 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 point there is that um, I don't think the Conservative Party would want to see anybody other than Boris um, lead us into the next general election, and you know the rest of this is 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 really background noise that ultimately general public would get pretty 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 sick of hearing. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. 